Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Can you sort of talk us through the kind of average, like, night shift because I remember you sort of saying there was a break and you'd have like a packet of crisps and that would do you for the whole evening or something like that. Yeah. Just just sort of the, the, the stuff you told me, basically. You'd come onto the ward about quarter to nine at night and your handover from the day staff was nine till quarter past nine. There would be three of you. There would be the nurse in charge. There would be an enrolled nurse and a student or an auxiliary. If you were very, very busy, you might have a, a bank nurse, which is a nurse who would just be a nurse who comes to do a few hours, who's mm. just directed to any ward where it's needed. Um, so they'd go off and do that. I'd go check all the patients, check their fluid sheets to make sure that they have enough intravenous fluid written up for the night if they have it for the night um, get the drugs trolley out and you go through with the drugs trolley while your other nurses are do, going through sort of the temperature, pulse, blood pressure um, settling people down for the night and you, you say you would go through if anyone needed a hand well you'd go and give them a hand and then you, you have your, your big notepad for the night and you'd write anything down and then by the time you'd finished that you know you hopefully your doctor is still around your houseman and you get them to make sure there's enough fluid for the night anybody who's needing extra drugs for the night that they've got them anyone who's got a temperature anything abnormal you just report to the doctor for the night and as you're going along you switch the lights out um and just make sure everybody's comfortable for the night. And then by that time, it's usually time for one of the nurses to go for their break. 
and then next one comes back. I would nearly always take a third break, which was, now let me think, it would have been about one o'clock in the morning or something like that. And you might have a sandwich and a cup of coffee then. Sometimes I'd go down to the canteen. When I first did nights, you used to have the whole canteen open. You could get bacon sandwiches and all sorts. You could get a dinner if you wanted. Why you would feel like eating a dinner at that time, and I really don't know. But then by the time I was qualified, it had got that you had machines and you could get some chips out the machine or those these microwavable meals that you just put in a microwave. Oh, they were horrible. So you tended to take your pat lunch. Sometimes, depending on how busy we were, sometimes I would just stay on the ward, just go into the day room and eat it there. And then um, two o'clock, you did your two o'clock rounds where you go and check all the patients. Um, when I first did nights, you used to have to go around and check all pulses, temperatures, blood pressures and things. But then they got it that, well, you only checked the really sick ones or if anyone was having bother. I mean, obviously, if there was other people who were really sick, it wouldn't just be two o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning. You would go and check them a bit more often. Um <laughs> But yes, two o'clock, you would go and do your rounds, just go, you know, make sure everybody, single person is checked. Uh, and six o'clock in the morning as well. In between that time, you all have an, about another 20 minute break. Usually I would just go in the, the day room, Mars bar, bag of crisps, cup of coffee. That was my usual thing at five o'clock in the morning. And because I had to write up uh, the notes, because you, every patient should have a care plan. And then in in the file, every patient has a their cardex, I think it was called cardex, and you would write down sort of what sort of a night they had, if there was any problems, and that's what the day staff have to go by. And the day staff would come on at about half past seven to have a handover. And uh, yes, so I, I would just be me handing over to the day staff, just telling them what's happened overnight, if they've had a good night, and that would be it. My, my, <laughs> my, my real sort of annoyance with night duty was when the clocks go forward and the clocks go back. Because when the clocks go back and they, the day staff lose an hour's sleep, you could guarantee they'd be late coming in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll if I got this the right way around now, if the clocks go back, yeah, I think that's when they used to come in. Because if you did, the, when the clocks went back, you were supposed to do the shift where the clocks went forward. So you didn't actually lose an hour out of your life. Ah, <laughs> okay. I'm sure that's happened to me somewhere along the line. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, it was supposed to be that they should come in at the normal time, but they never did. So the no. times when it should have been advantageous to us, it never was because it would come in late. <laughs> so I, I hated say, that. So I kind of just want to touch on your work with the few asthma and diet studies that you've done. And, and Oh, yeah, just, yeah. Okay, I was expecting that reaction. I, like, <laughs> I won't get into it too much because I know you've probably talked about it to death with people who are far more qualified to talk about it than me. Well, I sort of got into asthma. Sort of, I did some research in Newcastle with a chap called David Hendrick, and it was at the time asthma prevalence was shooting up. In so in the UK, asthma prevalence shot up in the 1970s and 80s. You know, kids with asthma went from four percent to twenty-four percent over the space of twenty, thirty years. And everybody was trying to find out why this had happened. So when I was doing, I was, did some research in uh, Newcastle and we were looking at prevalence of asthma in the East Coast and West Coast, which is why you spent the first year or two of your life being transported between <laughs> the East Coast and the West Coast. So we used to go across the West Coast every couple of weeks and you used to be chucked <laughs> in the back of the car. 
So anyway, so you spent most of your first years. So we used to do see patients and study recruits and things like that. And we I used to take you into work and you used to get shoved on the floor in the pulmonary function lab on Saturday mornings, uh, whereas patients came in to be reviewed. Anyway, so so then <laughs> we did a study where we were looking at sodium uh, excretion, looking at sodium intake in people. Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways to look at sodium intake in relation to asthma was we used to collect the urine for 24 hours. So these people used to collect their urine for 24 hours and leave it on our doorstep in Whitehaven. So we used to as, as in wake up in the morning. <laughs> yeah, so we used to wake up in the morning with milk on the doorstep as well as two litre bottles of urine. Uh, anyway, so then I went, oh my God. <laughs> so then I, I went to Nottingham and wrote up my research. And then I went up to Aberdeen to work with a chap called Anthony Seaton who'd got, come up with this idea that maybe diet had something to do with asthma. So between the two of us, we came up with this idea that maybe diet during pregnancy was important. So he set up this study of, so he set up this birth cohort looking at what mothers ate during pregnancy and related it to what their, whether children developed asthma or not. And we showed lots of interesting associations. And people have now done intervention studies with things like vitamin D and fatty acids and shown that indeed if you give pregnant women certain things, you can alter the kid's risk of developing asthma. so yeah that's what we did and we've done lots of other things looking at maternal occupation maternal smoking i mean the really interesting thing is you can actually look at ultrasound scans of babies at 10 weeks gestation and babies who develop asthma are a little bit smaller at 10 weeks and then we know that if you've got reduced lung function when you're born you're more likely to have reduced lung function when you're about 20 30 if you've got reduced lung function when you're a kid you're more likely to develop asthma you're more likely to develop copd as an adult so it looks very much as though kids are programmed to develop airways disease and that you know once you're on this trajectory towards asthma and copd you know, your increased susceptibility and other things take effect. So this is what we've been working on for the last sort of 20 years, this idea that what happens to you before you're born influences whether you like to develop asthma or COPD later in life. So that's what we've been up to. So you had a a week in school, more or less preparing you for um, psychiatric wards. So I was at, uh, I think it was St. St. Nicholas's in Gosforth which was like a very old Victorian, Victorian building. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't a very nice building, you know, very <laughs> clinical looking inside, white, white tiles and things, very cool, well, cold looking when you go in. Um, when I think of it, I just think of it sort of the darkness and the foreboding every time you went in that building. Yes, it was, uh, it, I mean, you think of people with mental health and psychiatric problems, but, I don't know, I suppose it was still quite, a lot of this stuff was old fashioned. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know how they deal with it even these days, but I can't imagine that a lot of the things that way some of them were, well, they were treated, I mean, they were treated, I'm not saying they were treated badly or anything, but uh, I don't know, I don't know how how it would have changed now, but I just remember the foreboding and the, the very sort of clinical and, um, one one thing, I think they still do it, the electric shock treatment. And I, it's an absolutely barbaric thing to see. And I remember there was an elderly patient and he was in with depression, a lovely old man. And he had to go for some more electric shock treatment and he really didn't want it. And I had to take him down and I felt awful. Mm. And I had to stay with him. And it was just heartbreaking. 
you know, because I knew he didn't want it. And I know afterwards he would have some bad effects and, you know, he had memory problems and things when he came round from it. And I, yeah, things like that, I just thought was barbaric. And I just remember, you know, pa- I mean, patients probably still do wonder the, the wards and the corridors like they did then. And, you know, people where, you know, they can they can see parts of their body. I think it was that mainly hearts. I don't know why hearts, but mainly hearts sort of beating on the, on the ground in the corridor. And they'd be so, oh, you can't stand there. And um, yeah, so quite shocking. And then we had the escapees. I don't know how they used to escape. I, I was going to ask about the escapees. Because <laughs> I remember you talking about somebody escaping and you had to go chasing them. Yeah, it was a young lass. Luckily, I was quite young then and fit. <laughs> um, yes, and I, she she was on. I mean, she was on sort of close monitoring. So you had this nursing station, and then you had beds that were sort of right in front of the glass. But there was like a curtain, like a neck curtain. But you you, you know you could still see them. But if, so they felt as if they had some privacy. And there was a young lass, and I can't remember what she was actually in for, but you know she was always running across the blooming field out of this hospital because there was quite a you know, huge grounds to this hospital and you ended up sort of shooting after it because it was always the first one who spotted it had to go you couldn't just sort of wait around and say well hang on you know can someone go after it? you had to go and it was charging over this field and then you know not trying to grab a hold of her but you know sort of try and get in front of her or something and tell her to you know she has to go back but yes I did quite a lot of running I can't, as I say, I can't, I don't know how she used to get out, quite honestly. I I can't remember. My brain just doesn't go that far back and think, oh, yeah, I remember that. That's how it happened. But somehow she used to manage to get out. So, yeah, I just remember running over that field across this young lass, very tall, thin young girl with blonde hair. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) Darting across a field. (laughs) Darting across a field. (laughs) I was going to touch on your work in Africa a little bit later, but I guess we can talk about it now. So, like, is it the same thing you're doing in Africa, or is or is it uh, something slightly different? It's, it's taking the ideas that people have developed in what they call the global north, which is Europe, Australia, and uh, America, but the far more relevant to the global south, such as Asia, Africa, where nutrition is less stable more Mm. people are likely to be short of food and it's very clear almost certainly most of the lung so prevalence of lung disease in africa is appalling their lung function is appalling Uh, however it looks very much as though most of it is related to things happening to them before the born what the mother eats where she's exposed to smoke all sorts of things but it looks as though as much of the lung disease present in africa is related to uh what happens to babies before the born. It's very much what was happening in Glasgow, Liverpool, Newcastle at the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century. So lots of kids born who'd been short of food before they were born, born with poor lungs, you know, then they started smoking, highly likely to develop COPD and asthma. So what we're seeing in Africa now is what we were seeing in the UK at the beginning of the 20th century. So it's all linked in. Mm. I just think feeling that you were doing something for somebody else that they needed you and you were making their life a little bit better whether they were actually going to be getting better and going home or weren't expected to get better you were making a difference to their lives by 
talking to them by being happy that they would see smiley face somebody who would sit and chat to them um you know who they they trusted and it was just really i think that i think that's what you get out of it that you you see that you're helping somebody that can't help themselves Mm. and then of course there was the when I first qualified and went on to ward 15 and the enrolled nurse and auxiliary didn't know who they were getting in charge of the ward that night and I walked on the ward and I'd already worked with the auxiliary when I was a third third year student on night duty and she says ah it's Jill we'll be fine (laughs) (laughs) yay That was the thing, it was always a proud moment as a student if you were trusted to go and do something on your own or if you were trusted to stay in charge of the ward while the one in charge had gone off for a break or something. That, mm. that, was, always a, that was always a... Oh, you always wanted to carry the drug keys. You always wanted to be the one clattering the, the keys in your pocket. It made you feel important. <laughs> that was always the goal of a student nurse, to be able to walk around with keys especially the control drug key that was even better and then when you and then when you're allowed to take the phone for the whole of the medical unit that was even better (laughs) (laughs) sorry just these little moments Was this? Oh, I've been sent something. Was it? Was it me sending you the Zoom link by any chance? No, it's uh, it's another one of my pop songs from uh, Africa. <laughs> Actually, you know what? We're here. We're here now. You brought it up. We're going to talk about it. So you sent me a music video. You sent me a message a while ago saying you're now a pop producer, and you sent me yes. a music video. Would you? Yes. Do you want to talk about that on on here? Yeah. What we're doing is. Uh, so soon after I got to school of tropical medicine, we managed to get this grant to look at lung health in Kenya. So what we're doing is we're looking at the lung health of children who live in two communities in Nairobi and Kenya. So one of the communities is in a slum called Mukuru. So it's a huge slum, you know, 300,000 people living in really crowded conditions. And then there's a slightly more upmarket area called Buruburu. So what we're doing is we're going to the schools and recruiting the children and recruiting in both schools and recruiting the parents and we're getting questionnaires and we're measuring the kids lung function Mm. when you're in africa it's really important because in the uk if you want to do research just send them a letter whereas in africa they're a little bit more wary about these sorts of things and what you try and do is to get the whole community involved okay Uh, so we have some researchers in glasgow who are very good at getting communities involved. So what's happened is they've got all these community groups in Buruburu and Mukuru, and they've, the people who live in the area have generated a pop song to publicize the study. When you look at the pop video, it's all about uh, Tupamui, which is Let's Breathe, and that's the name of the study. And they've got Ishifiti, which is Live Long, you know, Breathe Well, Live Long. So the, And, you know, they had a... A, a big march between the communities of Makura and Buruburu, which is what you see on the pop video. So the pop video is there to advertise 
the study. So they're all wearing Tupamuri t-shirts. It's all about advertising the study. Mm. There's now a Tupamuri channel on YouTube. So it's all about trying to get people involved and, you know, some they like pop videos. And it, it's, it's a way of getting them involved in the study. So, that you know, the kids are all involved because there's a puppet and they love puppets. So it's all about trying to get them enthused about it, So which is that's why there's a video. And I coughed at the cash to pay for it. Excellent. Well, I will. I will put a link to to the project in uh, in the show notes for the episode, so people can Good. can look it up and do a little bit of promo for it as well. Excellent. Well, yeah. Okay. That that I promise that is everything now. So thank you. Good. Right. I'll get your mum on board. Okay. Excellent. No worries. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 